Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today, we have Connor Hogan on, who is who competed in 2018 in Pyeongchang at his first Paralympics, is hoping to compete in Beijing in March. He is from the skiing hotbed of Foxborough, Massachusetts. We're going to have to get into that. Connor, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm excited. This is awesome. Yeah, Foxborough, Mass. Foxborough, Mass. Not a lot of mountains around Foxborough, Mass. Not really. They have a football team there. They have a football Uh, team, but not a lot of skiing. So how did this happen? So I uh, actually grew up skiing in southern Vermont. My... uh, my parents were both ski instructors at a small ski area in Southern Vermont called Bromley. And it was every weekend in the winter, we would be in Vermont at my grandmother's house and they would be working and, at, and teaching. And I was in the kids center. And, you know, by the age of five, I was on the hill um, skiing every weekend when we were there. So it was kind of one of those things where I was either going to love it or I was going to hate it. And there was no in between. Um, you know, I love, you know, it became one of those things where I was normal when I skied and it wasn't, oh, you're the disabled kid. So that's why I fell in love with it. And that's how the whole thing came to be. So can you describe, because I was asking you this before we went on, what your class is specifically and, and how you fit into that class? So nine one is it's disability that affects half of your body. So and it's a little more than a nine two. So my disability affects my leg from my hip down and affects my arm, my right arm as well. Um, and that's a little different than like a nine two where it's more below the knee and arm um, than above the knee and arm. So my, my whole right leg is affected as where a nine two would more have a lower leg um, issue. And so that was from from a stroke in in the womb, right? And and cerebral palsy as a result, is that right? Yeah. So I had I had a stroke in utero, um, and when I was about a year to eighteen months old, my parents really started to question why I wasn't walking and why I wasn't crawling. I remember stories from when I was a kid where I would just roll around the house, um, and. Roll around like barrel roll, like, like log roll. Like I would just, I would just roll places. And finally my mother was like, asked my pediatrician about it. And, you know, a few days later we're at Children's Hospital Boston and I get diagnosed with CP. Um, And it, you know, it never, I always want to think that it never affected my life, but I also at the same time don't think I would be where I am today without it. So it's always one of those things where I'm like, wait, do I mean, I, I love where I am today. So I wouldn't want it any other way. You said that skiing was a big equalizer for you. What were other sports like? So, you know, I was the kid that tried every sport. I played, I played peewee soccer. I mean, I played little league baseball. I played, I played peewee soccer. I, and I was always the kid that wasn't fast enough, couldn't throw the ball, couldn't catch the ball. You know, I was always the underdog 
when it came to certain things and I always felt left out and even even when it came to sports and gym like I couldn't climb the rope or I couldn't shoot a basketball and ski racing was that place where I could always go as a kid and I felt accepted and I felt the same and I had the same struggles that every other kid had on the hill and I could get involved in ways that I couldn't other places and for a long time I ski race able-bodied and people either knew I had a disability and didn't care or didn't know I had a disability and it didn't affect them so that's you know what did that mean when you started getting into skiing then what did that mean for you emotionally was there a metamorphosis or anything or a I, I, you know, it always was my, it was my safe space and, and I would spend five days a week at home being made fun of and being told that I wasn't good enough and, and bullied and, and all those, those things that came with a disability that I didn't love. And the weekends were my, my, my time to be free, my time to be myself, my time to be open and like, and some of my closest friendships to this day are people that I made skiing because I could be open and be myself with them and not have to hide myself because of my disability. How did you end up getting into able-bodied uh, racing? Did you know anything about the Paralympics? No. So the whole, the whole Paralympic thing. So my ski racing journey started at seven or eight. I'm still little fuzzy on the date on the year but my mother came home from work one afternoon and looked came up to me and said hey do you want to go try a race clinic and so we went down to Wyndham New York down to ASF and tried racing for the first time and I kind of fell in love with it from there um and the it kind of dwarfed into you know I raced Diana Golden races for a long time and then I wanted to do more racing so I raced with the able body program at Bromley and then I remember watching there was a 2008 um it was before NBC did any real broadcasting of the games at all and there was a documentary they did about the 2008 summer games in Beijing which ironic that we're going back to Beijing but um where um, one of a wounded warrior that had come to a wounded warrior weekend at Bromley ran track and ran the hundred meters in Beijing. And I remember watching this documentary sitting in Vermont and I looked at my grandmother and my, and my mom, and I said, I'm going to be a Paralympian. And how and old were you? I was, I was probably 12. I was 12 or yeah, it was 2000. It was I was I was 11 so yeah I was 11 and I just remember my my grandmother and my mother being like are, are you crazy like like this is this is where it's gonna be and you know and I you know I I'm so happy to be where I am now that like I remember I look back on those moments and every four years when it comes around I I start to think back to that moment where I was like I'm going to the Paralympics and I don't care what I need to do to get there that, that it like it makes me it reminisces and it brings up a lot of good memories from being a young kid 
So let me make sure I get this right. So, so there was a wounded warrior who had come to Bromley to learn how to ski. Yep. And then ran the 100 meters in Beijing in 2008. And that's when you said, this is what I'm doing. And, yeah. but you hadn't really, I mean, you said you'd, you had done some Diana Golden races, who, who was, I actually saw Diana at a ski race at Burke the year before my accident. She was the only person with a disability who showed up at this race, one-legged skier and, and was an amazing athlete really. And, yeah, and, and yeah. sort of in a lot of ways, the model of the athlete that you want to, she's like, look, I don't have time for excuses. I'm just, I'm going to fall. I'm going to get back up. I'm chasing you. And you're like, yeah, I know you're chasing me. Okay. But, but then did you get into Paralympic stuff after making this statement in 2008? How did that work? Yeah. So I had pretty much done Diana Golden races since probably six or seven. And I'd done more and more every year. And then the, the winter of 2008, 2009, I won fastest junior in the East, which was like a Diana Golden thing at the time. And, um, it was one of the things was to go to the race clinic at um, Ski Spack out in Breck. And so I went out there in 2009 as a 12-year-old. And it was at the point where you couldn't race. Um, you couldn't race in, a, in an international race until you were 13. And I raced up a year and raced at 12 in my first Norams in Copper um, in the lead up to the Vancouver Games um, that year. And that was like my first real experience with the, the next level of Paralympic ski racing that was going on 13 years ago, which is shocking to me that I've now been at racing internationally for 13 years or 12 or 13 years of my life now. Um, so. And so you were, you were only 12 then. And so yeah. you, had to, you, you were how did you finagle your way into the race if you weren't supposed so to race there was there was a there was a rule where you could race up and you had to get like signed off by certain people and you know certain people to sign off and say yeah you can race in this race um and so that was my first real experience and that was the end of like you know that was that was the year that like we you know everybody went to vancouver and i just remember being there and that was my first time meeting Ralph and all those guys and being like it awestruck that this was happening and I was there and that you know and it's changed a lot in 12 years and I think back on it a lot now and I'm like I've helped to grow this sport in ways that I never thought I would and it just makes me feel good about like how far it's come in so so little time it, well, there's a real responsibility for every athlete. I mean, especially on the Paralympic side, I think it's one of the great things is that you as an athlete are responsible for pushing the sport forward. You can't just rely on the organizers. And, but was that a different race for you, like a different level of like a bigger mountain, steeper terrain, longer, longer race, that kind of thing? Yeah. So it was, it was my second trip out West. My first trip was I, we did a family ski trip out to Snowbird, Utah, like two years beforehand. And that was my first like big ski trip. And it ended with me scraping my face up on a powder day, um, which, but, and, you know, 
it was, you know, it was a bigger race. It was, it was a different experience. It was, it was, it was a games year where there was, there were probably 75 or 80 people entered in this memorandum. If I think back now and, and think about it, um, just that there was that many people in this NORAM. I mean, we were, we, I just got back from St. Moritz earlier today, actually. And, you know, we were talking about how you can always tell when it's a games year because there's so many more people entered in races. Um, so. Right. A lot of these countries and a lot of these people don't necessarily have the budgets to be able to go to the races every single year. But when it's a games year, everybody goes to all the races Exactly. So I just remember it being like, okay, wow, this is, this is the experience I'm having. Like I'm ski racing against people that have won Paralympic medals and are going to win Paralympic medals. And, and it's just one of those experiences where I was more awestruck than anything. And that was, you know, I go to a Noram now and I'm, I'm, I'm the person that everybody looks up to. And it's a weird I don't know. Weird isn't the right word. It's a, it's a different experience for me now thinking back on it. Like I would, that was me at a younger age. Do you feel like that person now? The, do you feel like the people that you looked up to that you were awestruck? Do you feel like a Ralph? Do you feel like a, you know, even like a Lori Stevens or those kinds of people who are Tyler was there back then? Yeah. Uh, cdy i mean you had a bunch of people who had won a bunch of medals right yeah no and i i, I do and, and i you know i still look up to those those guys you know i still i still look up to tyler i still look up to cdy on a regular basis and think that like that is what i want i mean my 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 goal is my goal is you know super gear oh, downhill bro, gold in in the games and and you know, the other, the other goal I, you know, I want is that I want the downhill title. I want the downhill season title. That was one, another one of my, like, my big ski racing goals that I want to accomplish before I retire. How do these work when you, when you set a goal like that and you say, cause you're talking about gold medal at the Paralympics, you're talking about a downhill crystal globe. So that's for the season long. When you set those goals, how do you how do you go about achieving that? And how do you go about reminding yourself of that goal? So the, the, the both of those, so I, I work out in a gym with, with some training staff here on these in just outside of Foxborough in Norwood. And right after, um, I started working out there the year after the game. So 2019, the summer of 2019, I started working out there. And one of the things that I gave them probably pretty, pretty soon after I started working out there was I gave them one of my Paralympic bibs from the games in Pyeongchang. And we took a Sharpie in gold, it was a gold Sharpie. And we wrote Paralympic gold on the back and then crystal globe on the back. And we hung it in the gym. And every day when I leave the gym, I have to walk by it because that's the only way out of the gym. And to this day, Jason and Cameron, like, that's your dream right there on the wall. Like, you can't, you can't, like, I can't go a day when I'm at the gym working out, thinking of, not thinking about it because it is right there. Um, and I, going to Pyeongchang was a surprise to me. I, 
I got reclassified and didn't really know how my season was going to go and was kind of like kind of felt like I was at a point where 2022 is going to be my first game so I was going to be my shot and um I did get to go to Pyeongchang I unfortunately suffered a concussion before the first run of the slalom um I skied the first run of the slalom threw up in the finish line it's all you know it's a whole thing um but it it was you know I took that as that you know I've gone to a games I got to experience the games this games is I'm focused on what I want and I I there's a there's a Bill Belichick motto that I kind of live to this day and it's take no days off and I am I will say it's one of the bad habits I get into is where I don't take enough days off sometimes I there's one point this summer I went 43 days doing some kind of workout every day and I finally hit a wall and I was like I you know I need a day off and so it's one of those things where I you have to balance everything to get where you want so with so so with hemiplegia you know with with your with your right side being affected both the arm and the leg what is it that you have to work on in the gym what makes you a better skier so I you know I do a lot of the same exercises that any skier would do squats deadlifts you know bench press all that kind of stuff but I probably you know I do a lot more agility I do a lot more right legged balance stuff I do a lot more you know, those kind of things to try to build the strength in that, that strength in that leg and the ability to have the quick twitch that involves to be a ski racer at the next, you know, to be the best in the world. Um, so. What does agility look like? What, like, can you give us an example of, of what you might do? So it kind of depends on the day, but some days we'll do, we'll do a lot of like, we'll do, um, like ladder drills we'll do like quick feet double jumps those kind of things and then other days we'll do like so the gym that I work out at is a big football gym and a big baseball gym and so there's a lot of there's a lot of like d1 recruits that work out there and (coughs) high school guys that are going to go on to be d1 recruits and so I do a lot of one of the things that we I've done differently than I think a lot of ski racers out there is I've done a lot of football drills. I've, you know, we do cone drills on a regular basis. We'll do drills where I'm getting, you know, rubber lacrosse balls thrown at me and I have to catch them while we're running certain drills. So it's a, it's a, it's a different, I, it took me a long time to find a, find a place that I felt comfortable working out at and a place that I felt like I could do you know we could change things up and we were always trying we're always trying to find new and better ways to do something um so okay so you're saying that at some point they are throwing lacrosse balls at you which lacrosse balls are rubber but they are really hard yes. and, and hurt a lot uh, but they're training you lacrosse balls you were always the kid softer. you said you were yeah. the kid who couldn't catch back in the 
back in the day. That's why skiing was appealing. So skiing's appealing. Now you're out training and they're throwing lacrosse balls at you. How does that work? Does it work I, I well? I wish I had gotten better at catching and, than, than I was when, as, a, as an eight-year-old kid, but still once in a while I'll, I'll, I'll miss with the lacrosse ball. And it won't hurt. I will, I will have some bruises every once in a while from lacrosse ball coming. And I mean, they're training lacrosse balls, so they're, they're the, like the air-filled ones, but still they're, they're pretty painful when you're tossing them and trying to catch them and all those things. But yeah, no, it, it's just a, you know, it's a different way of looking at the bigger picture. And, and I think, I think one of the things that curious thing is a, as a sport has developed so much since I joined it. And, you know, honestly, curious thing when I was a kid was, was kind of the start of, you know, it was like the, the end of the first generation of shape skis and the beginning of like, let's see where we can push the boundaries of ski technology and i think to a certain extent now it's it's you know skis have been pushed to a certain extent now we're we're at the point where we have to find the way to be the fastest you know be in the best shape be the most athletic be be the you know the best anaerobic aerobic person to go out and perform on a day in and day out basis. And we've tried a lot, you know, we've changed a lot of things. So it's just interesting to see how things have progressed. Definitely. So you ski with two skis and two poles. I mean, one side of your body is affected, but two skis, two poles, two, you know, if you're, if you're at the bottom or, or you said, even when you were racing, some kids didn't even know that you had a disability. What do you need to do race day to be able to perform at your best to minimize the you know to minimize the spasticity that might well be working against you yeah so my my race day kind of starts i'll probably say earlier than than most guys um especially able-bodied guys but i'll get up you know two two and a half hours before we have to get our boots on and i'll do some some agility stuff some quick heat some some movement of all the joints to kind of loosen things up then i'll go massage strike roll get in the get on the lacrosse ball kind of loosen up the tight spots and then that's even before i put my boots on and then you know we'll put my boots on i'll go do some some more skiing drills and then we'll do another warm-up before the race starts so it's i have to i had to it's taken a long time to figure out that that like warm-up routine to make sure that I was in the best place possible to get what I needed out of it. How is it now? Because we, we talked with Spencer a couple of weeks ago, who is who actually is a nine two, right? So you guys are are in the in the same class, but but in a bifurcated class, right? So you're you're a one, he's a two, but it's in that class that has that is affected on one side of your body, both arm and legs. And he was talking about similar kinds of things like the quick feet beforehand. Is it helpful to have a teammate who's in a similar situation to be able to, you know, some do some trial and error? Yeah, you know, I think we, we have a really great staff behind us that will, you know, will listen to us and will help us kind of 
work through each thing that we need and you know we do we've it has been a lot of trial and error i mean i think we've both me and spencer have gone through a lot of different iterate iterations of what our warm-up is and it's been over year they can build up over years and years and years to you know perfect what that warm-up is i would say i mean I don't still don't think to this day my warm up's perfect. Don't get don't get me wrong, it's 100% not perfect, but um I think there's definitely an iteration, you know, you have to change things on a regular basis to see what work. I mean, we have a we have a motto in in my household and it's it's you have to try something to see if it works. Like you can't just be like, you know, like, so I'm a cyclist in the summer. I, I go ride my bike every day and, you know, we'll change stems on my road bike, you know, and be like, oh, is that better? Or is that worse than it was yesterday? Like, you can't, you can't just talk about it. You have to try it. And if you don't try it, then you don't know how to change things for the better. Right, exactly. And so it's, it's an ongoing process when have you had your best races? When have you thought this is it? Like this is this is when it all makes sense. And it, can you replicate it? Um, so I think definitely my best races are always in speed, which not shocking. I'm definitely a speed skier, but um, and they they tend to be later in the season, which ends up working out really well for me in the games here. Um, and I think. My, you know, my replication is there's certain things I do every day. I have the same playlist on my phone and no, it does not involve Kanye. If you, uh, if, you know, Spencer, uh, I just had to, you know, but, um, it, <laughs> hold on. You've got to explain that. Cause some of the people who are listening might not understand that Spencer is a huge Kanye fan, right? A very aggressively huge Kanye fan where we, we get it, we get it, we get it kind of pushed at us at least once a day when we're on the road. But, um, so, but we, we have to make fun of him about it. And so it's kind of one of those things where, um, we, um, but no, I mean, I have my same playlist and I have kind of these same things that I do every day. And I have a, I have a routine on race day and, and it involves, me picking up the phone after inspection and calling my father and talking through things. And it's one of those little, it's one of those weird, like, I don't think weird is the right word, but it's one of those things that's different between me and somebody, you know, somebody else um, that I have to do. And if I don't talk to him, then I tend to have a bad race, which if you ask him would have been evident yesterday when I got through three gates of a slalom and then crashed. So um what what role has your father played for you? You said that he coaches you at home. What role has he played for you? He's really the he's he's my technical skiing guy. He's you know we ski five six days a week when I'm home. He's my coach on the hill in training. He's the guy that taught me how to ski. He's like he's the one that works through boots with me. He's the one that works through skis with me. That's actually why I'm currently sitting in the car. If you can't tell, um, we are driving to Vermont to do some ski testing tomorrow. So, um, it's a, uh, it's kind of a, he's kind of the person I can talk to and I talk things through with. And he, 
he's really been the, the he's been the reason behind my success and I honestly wouldn't be where I am today without him and it makes me you know I love being able to share where I am with him on a regular basis and um so he's just kind of my my technique you know he's my he's I'm gonna call him my guru he probably won't like that term but that's what he is to me um so how do these conversations go you said that you do inspection and then you get on your phone and you call your father and this is this is from the U.S. this is from Europe it doesn't matter Japan, from China it doesn't matter where in the world we are I I called him after inspection in Pyeongchang um it really doesn't matter where in the world I am I will pick up the phone and call him he will be up I mean we were just in St. Moritz and it was 2 2:40 in the morning 2:50 in the morning and he would pick up the phone like it's just how our relationship has you know developed and he was my coach before I made the team um that would go to races with me so he knows how you know we talk through race situations and we talk through sets and we talk through technical skiing on race day and all those little things that um give that me an I example to- of like okay so so even like samaritz you're, you're racing in samaritz you said you just had the slalom yesterday how does that conversation go what so usually i pick up the phone he goes how you feeling this morning and i go I'm, I'm ready to race. And then he goes, then I say, the set is, you know, 26 to 28 meters with medium to large offset with this many delays. And he just says, you know, and I tend to, he tends to know where the hill is. And, and as he'll tell you, I'm a flatter hill skier, which is kind of concerning, but, but, and, you know, we'll, we'll talk through, you know, I'll talk through like the, the, troublesome sections where I think I'm gonna have trouble and then he'll say you know you need to be forward and on the front of your ski here or you're gonna you're gonna end up blowing out um kind of situations um like that and just the kind of the person who can give me words of advice when I need them in those situations so he's um, in some ways the one who is giving you those those keys those yeah uh, you know, there's always the key that kind of unlocks your skiing that you might think about yourself, but you might not think about yourself. And so he's the reminder of that. Is that how it works? Yeah, that's really how it works. And it's 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 a lot of reminders of this is what we've been working on in training and this is what we've been working on in free skiing. So like you know how to do it, so just go do it type of situation. How did you become a speed skier? Were you always a speed junkie? No, I grew up skiing slalom. Um, I grew up in a small ski area where the most you probably could run was 30 gauge GS, which as you know, or 20, 20 gauge GS, which is not a lot of gates, especially as a, as a J, J5. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's nothing if you think about it. And so I, when I was 15, um, I moved to Stratton, which is a little bit bigger mountain across from Bromley. Um, and I grew up, I started spending time and training and becoming friends with two 
current or one current USD teamer and one former USD teamer who is still competing on the World Cup. And they both became one became one of you know she she's a downhiller on the able body team now, and so they pushed me and training super junior is one of those things where I realized I loved going fast and I didn't want to stop and I now ski super junior more than I ski anything else which is it's a problem but um and and who are who are these people I mean they they're George Seppi and Ali Merriweather who George just um just raced in um over the weekend in Alta Vadia, but and Ali unfortunately got hurt in training this spring, but or this late summer. But they kind of pushed me to be where I am today, and they, um, it's just one of those things where once you get to a bigger hill and you can start going fast, it's fun to go fast. And I had two of the best. I our former one of my former coaches was is a big was a speed skier like a, not a not a not a downhiller but a actual speed skier like those guys that like to go 250 kilometers an hour laser or whatever yeah um but and he you know he's like you're, you like to go fast like you're a downhiller and i'm like no i'm not and i resisted it for a long time and then i then like once i got on speed skis and my first international super gi want a silver i was like okay this is this is where i want to be this is what i'm doing and i love it and was that so international was that was that a noram or was that a a world cup it was a national championship in aspen colorado right before the sochi paralympics um ralph was one i was two or uh, yeah ralph ralph green was one i was two and then ian jansing was three um in super g right before sochi okay so this was a while ago so this is a big breakthrough for you because you were still pretty young kid then too yeah so i was i was 16 um and i went to buttermilk and you know it was my first experience in in a speed race and i had run super g on on the able body side but it was never it was never big boy super you know big super g and it i kind of caught the speed bug and i've not looked back since and and really in the last two years super g has become super g and downhill i don't run as much we don't run as much downhill as any of us would like but have kind of become my things and um i love going fast and people will tell you i drive too fast in my car i ride my bike too fast it's it's kind of a thing now so does it fit you physically as well as mentally i mean it sounds like there's a mental setup but but physical is that the case too yeah so most most nine ones are better speed skiers it's the longer the turn the quick the less quick i need to move the easier it is to go faster (laughs) um and it's one of those things where I had this really, so I, going into last season, I lost 50 pounds um, of weight, which is still shocking to me in general. Um, but before that, I was, I was 230 and I was a downhiller, but I had to relearn what being a downhiller at one night, what 185 meant in bigger scheme of things. And 
I, for a little while, I was like, oh, I'm not going to love downhill as much anymore because I'm not going to be able to go as fast. And, and when I realized that Super G and downhill were almost more fun at 185 than they were at 230, I was like, oh, I can still be a downhiller. Like, this is, this is where I am and this is what I love to do. And what are you, so what are your biggest challenges? You, so, so longer turns are better for you. What, what are your biggest challenges? My biggest challenge is the fact that my right leg doesn't collapse as quickly as somebody else's. So in slalom, I get caught on my left footers because I can't get my right foot out of the way and then I'm stuck. And then it just kind of snowballs down the hill until I'm so far out that I blow up or I am slow because I have to throw them sideways to slow down to get it back to a position where I can actually ski it. As we're in downhill and super G, I can just throw the ski. I can just go, and that's how it it is. Which is one of those things that's a little bit counterintuitive, right? So, so your issue is on your right side, but because your right your right side is less flexible than your left side, it makes it harder to make the turn with, you know, as a ski racer, you're making your turn with the outside ski. So the ski yeah. that is away from the gate. So when you're making a left footed turn, theoretically, that should be your better turn. But because your right leg doesn't flex, it keeps your left leg from actually making the good turn that it should be. Exactly. And then I get stuck and it's a, it's ugly to say the least. Wow. Okay. Now, what are the challenges on the other side? Like the challenges on, on your right ski when your right leg is your outside, outside ski? So the, the biggest challenge on that side is I don't trust it with 100% of my weight. And so there will be situations where I'll, you know, I'll be in a turn going, going 50, 50 plus miles an hour and I end up being on my inside foot because I don't trust hundred percent that my right leg will hold me in that situation going that fast and I end up releasing it a little bit and then you know it slows me down but that's that's that biggest like it's a it's a big trust thing it's a big mental game is to, to know that I can trust that side through anything and that's the challenge I would imagine for you when you ski well is is when you're not banking into the hill right when you're getting that separation of upper and yep. lower body where your upper body is going down the hill your hip is into the hill and you're making the turn but the safety mechanism is that i don't want to commit too much to this so you kind of just tilt over and when you're tilting over you're inside and your weight is on your inside ski yeah, exactly and and that's that's the biggest challenge okay what are you doing to combat that i mean obviously there's training there's got to be a mental side of it oh there's 100 percent mental side to it and there's there's always the you know it's the more i do it the more i trust it kind of situation you know ten thousand hours is is a big big thing that you know you hear and i 100 percent say it's true because i learned how to ski I'm going to say properly because that's the only word I can think of right now but I learned how to ski properly in my late teens like I didn't really know what it meant to have upper body lower body separation be able to to get long and let the ski get away from you and 
all that stuff. Like that's still stuff I'm learning to this day. And I think the biggest thing is is being able to trust every piece from from your skis to your boots to your your physical preparation in the summer that it is all going to work out in the end. Well, it's all going to work out in the end, but then you also have to contend with the conditions, right? So, so watching you from Pyeongchang, I think you were twenty fourth in the GS in Pyeongchang, yeah. and it was it was hard, but it was also in some ways it was that spring hard, right? Where it had it had been really warm during the day and then froze overnight, and so you get that rattly it hard was, snow. It was seventy six degrees today at the GS in Pyeongchang. 76 so, so it got really warm. it's not supposed yeah. to get that warm yes no. and you don't really know what to expect though when you go to Beijing do you no not at all this will be uh it'll be a new experience to say the least so when you're talking about some of these things when we're talking about the physical we're talking about the mental you're talking about that you ride your bike you you look like and, and you're actually doing it right now you're anticipating my question there, there, there's a bit of Michael Jordan going on with you, right? I mean, are, is there is your tongue part of your steering mechanism? How does this work? It, it really is. You know, my, my tongue, my tongue, my tongue hangs out. It's, it's a bad habit I have. I'm trying to break it. But um, yeah, my tongue kind of has to go out to, it, it kind of is like a gravitational pull situation. I don't, I don't know, you know. It looks like you're guard, helping to but, steer. Yeah, I'm supposed to be wearing a golf guard, but don't tell, our, don't tell anyone that I'm, forget to put my mouth guard in on a regular basis so what do your teammates say about your about your steering with your tongue issue oh there's a lot of jokes about it i you know i, I think it's actually a whole world cup joke at this point you know i there's there's a few new you know there's every year there's a few new racers and i was riding up with one of the german guys the other day and the german guy goes oh yeah you're the kid that that, that skis with his tongue out and i'm like that you're completely new on the world cup and this is all you know about me like how you know so it's just it was entertainment to say the least when that was that was what was being talked about i was like oh okay so this is are you okay with that that that's your that that's your differentiation that that's how people know you yeah you know it's something that i've done since i was a little kid i'm not going to change it now it works for you the whole if it ain't broke don't fix it you said that that the trip to uh to San Moritz was not exactly the trip that you were hoping for where are you in your preparation right now for Beijing and for for qualifying for Beijing right because you still have to qualify as well so the next big trip is the, the big one for qualifying for Beijing um it is, it's world champs and so if we podium at world champs and we automatically make the games team um and i'm confident in i'm confident in where i am in my speed skiing my gs is not quite where i want it to be um and then i think there's there's multiple factors playing into that um i you know i think there's still some equipment things that we're trying to figure out and there's still some technical skiing issues that are going on, but, and then I really skied the salon on the last day in St. Moritz for the fun of it. I'm really trying to find the fun in salon. I don't, I'm not a salon skier. I don't love it. I 
struck a deal with coaches where I don't have to ski it all the time. Um, and I won't be skiing it. I definitely won't be skiing it in Beijing no matter what. And I won't be skiing it at World Champs more than likely, um, mostly to have some rest days built in. But, and honestly, sometimes it's too hard to train everything. Um, there's only so many days on snow. Does it, it's funny because you quoted Belichick before that there are no days off. You went 43 days during the summertime of doing something, of training every single day. Is it actually helpful for your skiing to take a day off to give your body that rest? As much as I hate to admit it, it is, you know, I can only do so much and I think it's becoming more and more obvious in the world of ski racing that there aren't gonna there aren't really a lot of athletes out there anymore that are skiing all five, all six disciplines on the World Cup anymore. Um, even able-bodied, um, you know, Michaela Schiffer's trying it this year, didn't so much last year. Petra Volva tried it last year, isn't so much this year. You know, I think there's only, you know, there's only so much time in a day and in a in a in a prep walk on snow to really focus on everything that you have to be selective sometimes with what you're training when you're training it what about physically though like for you like with the spasticity and those kinds of things does it alleviate some of the spasticity to be able to take a day off yeah it uh, definitely does and, and swallowing with it being quick twitch is one of the things that adds more spasticity to the system you know adds more lactic acid to the system which tightens muscles up which causes a lot more other issues and so it's one of those things where especially if there's a slalom at the beginning or the more the beginning of the trip than the end of a trip it's a bigger struggle for me to ski it because I know that I'm gonna have it's gonna be an uphill battle from skiing that slalom through to everything else because everything's built up Right. And and you really at the games, it's set up so that you run downhill super GGS slalom. But there's also the X factor of the weather and and slalom is a far easier race to run in more difficult weather conditions if there's a lot of snow, if there's fog, than than a downhill. So that <laughs> that 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 possibility is always there for you that you might end up having to run some slalom. So you don't plan to run slalom. You'll run giant slalom, super G and downhill, most likely. Yep, and Is super combined. A, was, and super combined, okay. I will, I will do the run of slalom and super combined, but that will be probably the limit of my slalom skiing at the games. Okay. And, and is it the faster you go, the more you, the more comfortable you feel like, or the better your chances are? So is downhill your best chance? I think either super or downhill is probably my best chance. Um, I am more um, comfortable in super G than I am downhill at this point in time, but well, you know, I haven't had that many days on my downhill skis um till you know i had a couple days last year and a couple days the year before i mean we haven't trained all that much downhill in the last two years i'm hopeful to get some days on my downhill skis before we go to norway um still working out the details it's you know it's always an uphill battle to 
for anyone to let you ski downhill anywhere at any time. What are you running downhill on? How long are the skis you're running downhill on? So I have, I have, a, I run on a pair on pairs of 218 men's world cup 50 meter downhill skis. Um, depending on the downhill set, I might run it on 40 meter super G skis, but more than likely the game set and the, the, um, the game set will be downhill and Norway we'll see, but it'll be more than likely I'll be on two eighteen fifties. And what are the what are your super G's? You said they're 40 meter skis. Yeah, so it's a 207 40. Um greater than 40. Right, 40 meter skis. And that's is that where you feel comfortable? You've got that big that those big skis underneath you that that they feel solid and Exactly. It's, it's a, you know, I feel like I can stand on that ski and bend it and it will do what I want it to. I, you know, I get on slalom skis and I, I felt this the other day. I got on my slalom skis and I was like, these skis feel too short. Like, I feel like I'm going to tip over at any moment on these skis. Like I can ski it any, all, all I want, but like, I still feel like I'm going to tip over. Um, well, I mean, it's an interesting thing because you said that you will run the, the super combined which for you guys, is that a run of super G and run of slalom? Usually, yeah. Um, I still think they can decide, but I think I think what I've heard is both world champs and the games are going to be super G this year. Super um, G as opposed to downhill. And so yeah. so oftentimes the super combined in the uh, in World Cup is that they run a downhill, a run of downhill and a run of slalom. And sometimes you see those, those downhillers, and this might be the same case for you, where you see these big guys who have not who have been making big turns and going off of big jumps and they got on these short little skis and it looks like they've stepped on a banana peel and they're, they're oh, skis oh yeah, 100%. Up over their head. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I feel the same way. Every time I, I step on my songs, cause I'm like, wait, can somebody teach me how to turn these things again? Like, I don't, I don't know what's happening. What will this be like when you go to Beijing? So one, Nobody, nobody outside of China has raced on this trail, on these courses. What's that going to be like? I, I really think it's going to be, it's going to be an experience in knowing our limits and knowing what we need to do in order to, you know, we've seen POVs. I feel as prepared as I can be without actually going to a test event and actually tested the hill for the downhill, you know, we'll have a free ski on the hill. We'll, we'll have a feeling of what the snow feels like. Um, I think it's just a, it's a feel, you know, you're going to feel it out and you're going to see, it's going to depend on really depend on the set and just depend on, it's going to be a big mental game. It'll be a big mental game, but one, you, you don't know what the set's going to be like. Two, you don't know what the hill's going to be like. I've read something about a 65-degree pitch somewhere, so there might be something that could be pretty darn steep. And you mentioned that you are a flat skier, so that might not exactly play into your, into your hands. But then also snow conditions, because you really haven't skied in that part of the world to know 
what the snow conditions might be like. So the tuners, the coaches, the athletes, everybody's kind of scrambling when you get there. Is, is that something that you embrace this idea of, you know, you don't know it until you do, until you try it? Well, hundred percent. We'll have, we'll have a lot of, you know, I'll be, I'll be talking to a lot of the, the able-bodied guys who will be there a month before us and, and hearing what they have to say about it and hearing what they have to say about the snow conditions and, and, you know, our techs will be talking to their techs and, and I think there'll be a lot, I think, I think we will be more prepared than the Olympians at this point because we will have had a chance to talk to people um, and get the information. Right, exactly. They, and, but it's also the Paralympics start a month after the Olympics start. I mean, it's two weeks in between, but yeah. it's a month. It's what it's the 4th of February for the Olympics and it's the 4th of March for yeah. the Paralympics and a month in a ski season can make a lot of difference in terms of, in terms of the, the challenges or the conditions. So how are you, how are you approaching Beijing? You know, I mean, hopefully one, you've got to make the team, right? So, so what's the mindset for the, for the season for you then? My mindset is, you know, let's ski as fast as we can whenever we can and, and really see what comes out of it. And, you know, I think, I think in, I think in Beijing, it will be a, it's going to be a whole different experience than normal games with COVID and the restrictions. I mean, we were talking about it as a world cup in the last few days when we were together, it's like, we're really going to spend two out of the next three months together contained in relatively small confines of villages or hotels. Um, and it's a, you know, we're going to have to change things and see how things play out. Um, it's your job, right? I mean, it's your job. Your job is to go and compete and effectively you're sequestered Otherwise, your family won't get a chance to go, right? No. That's Third. the unfortunate thing. No, no family's allowed in Beijing, which is is sad and it's upsetting and, and sad. And it was one of the things that made Pyeongchang so much fun was that my mother did get to go and I got to experience, you know, I got to watch a gold medal hockey game in person with with her and you know closing ceremonies and all that that stuff around the games that I got to experience with her and I you know I do not think that Beijing will be my my last you know we think in, of our, our lives in quads we think of um you know I got to plan four years in advance and I do not think that Beijing will be my last games um, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know where I'll be in four years, but I think, I think I'll be around for another one and hopefully we're back to a more normal situation than we are now. And I came back into a, you know, I left, I left 12 days ago in the United States and it felt like, it felt we were going back to a normal and I come back and it feels like we're back to March, 2020 right now. So it's just interesting to kind of see how things are playing out. It is. So 13 hours difference, Beijing to Foxborough. So when you're 
finishing your inspection, what you're finishing your inspection eight to nine o'clock in the morning, something like that. So then, <laughs> so, so this is, so, so your dad, what, what, you know, that that's nighttime for him. Right. Yeah. So, so, so it actually works out not too badly. No. So what he did in, what he did in Korea was he, we talked after inspection, he went to bed, set an alarm for like 10 minutes before first run, got up, watched first run, went back to bed till I called him between runs and then talked to me on the phone and then went back to bed until I called him until he set an alarm for second run and then went back to bed. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't know how it's going to be for Beijing. I, my, my mother has some plans for doing some stuff with family and stuff like that um here on in the east coast and facetime and hopefully we have that conversation those conversations and that kind of stuff so we'll see how it we'll see how it all works but it'll definitely be another adventure that i'll be able to in another country that i never thought i'd ever go to to check off the list well it's also it's it's more helpful if you're a speed skier for your father because then that's only one run as uh, exactly to two runs. Exactly. He, he tends to like speed days better than non-speed days. And you were recently engaged as well. Has this, how does this change your life? Uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, a change of pace. I, I have to plan more family time into stuff. And I, I feel like I spend more time in the car these days just because I'm driving back and forth to Connecticut, but it really hasn't changed a lot. I, I, I love my fiance and I love our, our two dogs very much. And they support me no matter what. One of, one of our dogs likes to leave toys in my um, clothing bags when I leave. I will, I will open my, been a few times been at home, a few times been in Europe, a few times been in Colorado where I've opened my bag and there's been a dog toy in there. I'm like, I know exactly who put that in there. Um, and he'll hide it perfectly so I can't find it. Um, so it's it's not changed a lot, but at the same time, it's changed everything. And it it's a very, it's a balance that I have to, you know, I have to find. And I think it's put more balance in my life that I didn't have before. That makes, that makes perfect sense. I would imagine that when you find this dog toy in your bag, that it, that it actually probably grounds you a little bit more, but brings a smile to your face. It does. Every time I'm like, Scruffy, come on, dude. But I, I you know, I love my little family that I have. And, and I, you know, I can't wait till 2023 to marry my fiance. But at the same time, there's so much excitement and joy and so much fun to come that I'm excited to see it we've got to bring this back around to foxborough right i mean you're a ski racer we're going to bring it back to foxborough day after christmas there's a big game with buffalo how's that going to go uh it's going it's going patriots are going to win it um it's a it's going to be a hard battle but i think the patriots i'm i'm predicting a playoff berth here pretty soon and and it i've been team over Brady since the beginning and we'll we'll go from there but you know I I was lucky enough to one of our our neighbors for a number of years during the second big playoff um the big Super Bowl run was defensive line coach of the Patriots he has since moved on and to Kansas City and 
been part of two more Super Bowl runs, but um, it was always fun to hang out with them and, you know, get the, get the experience and be around that and have, you know, I am so lucky to grow up in a town where we have something that's been so good. And I love football. Like football is the one thing in Europe. I will wake up at two in the morning to watch on a regular basis. It's, it's an addiction that I probably need to fix, but that's beyond the point. (laughs) That is awesome. And you find places where you can watch football in Europe. VPNs and uh, Paramount Plus come in very handy. (laughs) Perfect. Well, Connor, thanks so much for joining us. I know that you were off to Vermont to go test some skis, to get ready to go ski with your guru, with your dad. So enjoy your time with your dad. Thanks for joining us. Good luck this year. I look forward to seeing you at World Champs and then also at the Paralympics. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Total pleasure. Thank you to all of you for tuning in. If you didn't get a chance to see the whole thing, it will be on the uh, One Revolution page on Facebook. All this and all of the interviews that we've done are archived there. It will be a regular podcast, YouTube, Apple, Spotify. The greatest gift you can give us, this is the holiday season, right, is to tell your friends about these, these interviews, these podcasts, and certainly follow us, like us, and share it with your friends. Happy holidays to everyone out there. Connor, thanks a ton, and we'll look forward to seeing you go fast. Thanks.